You know, what you do is important. The game plan and what we get the players to do clearly important. I think how you do it and why you're doing it. That's what I started to get a grip on. How we do it and then why we're doing it. And I used, when I was at London, I think that's the best way of describing it. I spent so long thinking about well, what do we need to do. And I didn't spend enough time thinking about how and why. Yeah. I've got an answer to the why. I'm not saying the what becomes less important, but you don't, I don't lose sleep over the what anymore. Hi, and welcome back to a new season of the Knights HQ podcast brought to you by Maxwell Recruitment and Training. Highly skilled labour hire and real-world training for engineering trades, construction to office administration. My name's Jay Nelson. Welcome back. It's season three of Knights HQ podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Matt Croker. Croaks, how you going, man? Going really well, Jay. I'm excited for today's episode. Uh, we have a very special guest, but he's all yours to introduce, mate. We are pleased to announce we have... One of our assistant coaches here, Brian McDermott. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Mate, great to have you here. Um, have, how's life settling into Newcastle? Has it been treating you well? Have you been enjoying it? Yeah, it's good. It's good. Uh, really enjoying it. Uh, moving from the UK to Australia is a big move anyway. And, uh, you know, we're just getting used to just that change of uh, change of everything. Uh, we don't know all the areas just yet. And uh, it's going to take us a while, to, as opposed to be completely familiar with it all but uh, what we've seen so far it's uh, really impressive had you ever spent any time in australia before i had here? yeah i had I've, I've been through just through work you know through uh, through footy yeah uh, but as you well know you don't get to see anywhere you don't get to yeah exactly see right. inside of a hotel and a, and a practice field don't you and a couple of pubs along the way <laughs> yeah, so, uh, a few pubs so uh when i retired i uh, i came out and spent uh I spent a few weeks and I stayed with a fella called David Boyle. Yeah. Who is Millie Boyle's Millie's dad. Father. There yeah, you go. Because yeah. he played for the team I played for in England. Yeah. So uh, I spent a few weeks with him and that's probably the longest time I spent. But uh, yeah, this is my first real extended stay in Oz. Yeah. So, so for those who don't know, uh, B Mackey played 250 games for Bradford Bulls over in the Super League and then has coached well over, it'd be over 400 games in the. Super League and all around the world, he's coached uh, USA and um, started up the Toronto Wolfpack. But uh, mate, listen, the way we usually do this podcast is when we get a new guest on, we play a bit of a a bit of a quiz. Um, so we had some technical difficulties before, so we'll, we'll <laughs> run through the first two questions, um, and it'll make you look good because you'll know the answers. But the last three uh, you haven't seen yet, so Jay, you can ask the first one. Yeah, so. Uh Front rowers aren't renowned for scoring tries, but as uh, Craig said earlier, 250 appearances for the Bradford Bulls. How many tries did you score over those 250 games? Do you know, I wouldn't have a clue. I'm just going to take a stab. <laughs> <laughs> I think possibly, I don't know, just maybe 30. 33 <laughs> is correct. Bang. Bang. Yeah. Bang. Oh, <laughs> nailed it. Yeah. Do you remember your first one, actually? I didn't ask you this. Yeah. Question. Well, that's a good call. Good question, though. Do you remember who it was against, at least? So I think I do remember my first one, and if it wasn't my first one, it was a very, very early one in my first grade career. But we played Salford, a team called Salford, uh, and this is when Bradford Bulls were called Bradford Northern. Yep. So they were Bradford Northern before uh, before Super League came in. So we used to play in the winter. Yep. Which our winter months are uh, October through to March, April time, and uh, we played on New Year's Day. Right. Yeah, right. I used to play on Boxing Day and New Year's Day. Yeah, wow. And uh, on New Year's Day, it's, the day started off about one degree above freezing. <laughs> and they had uh, uh, straw 
and uh, and sheets, cotton sheets on the field, yeah. stop the frost from the night before. Wow! So they drag those off before kick off. The referee goes on and gives it an, an inspection with his studs, you know, with his boots, and he says, "Yeah, I think this is okay to play." So we kicked off, and uh, during the game, you know, I scored a try. We, we won the game, and it, it was a tight game, but it was nothing of a game. Nobody wanted to go to the deck. Yeah, the yeah, ground was yeah, so hard. Yeah. yeah. And I reckon by the time we'd finished the game, eight minutes later, or possibly two and a half hours after the referee inspected, two and a half hours towards the back end of the game, uh, I reckon it was about minus two. Yeah, right. And the ground was, uh, it was just like concrete. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you played rugby league, but one of the rules was you're not allowed to go to the ground, either as a, an attacker or a defender. That's what it looked like because nobody wanted to go. Even yeah. the tacklers were tackling, and everybody was saying, "There's no way we're going to." So it was, it was ridiculous. How many seasons did you play in the winter before they switched it over? As a professional myself, yeah. uh, about four seasons. Yeah, wow. And then it switched from. So that that in itself is a crazy, crazy period for for British rugby league because. Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I don't know if you'd have to experience it that you, uh, to play in winter. And, and to deal with the, the weather, it's not the the biggest thing, no. but it's it's probably oh, on the list of priorities about why the game is where it is at the moment. Yep. you know, in England. Um, so, uh, so in the last winter season we played, we started in August or September 1995. Went through winter, finished the season in March 96. We had about three or four weeks break. Started another season, yeah. Wow, yep. yeah, right. So, how that worked is we had two weeks off, yeah, and came back in for training. So, we literally had two weeks away from everything. Came back in and we played that 96 season through the summer, and that's how we switched it. Switched it, yeah, that's how we switched from summer, yeah, yeah. Right. Wow, so after that summer season, you would have had a, a good earned rest, right? You, you kind of a bit like, yeah, <laughs> after doing uh, two seasons in a row, yeah, you don't do it. Uh, I just remember everybody's bursts. I just remember this thing called but I never heard of bursts before. Okay. Because when you play through winter, you wreck the grounds. All yep. grass fields in winter are, are chewed up. Yeah. You know, uh, because obviously you play in wet conditions. And then what the groundsmen do is all summer is restore the field, but obviously we played. So we've gone from these, uh, you know, really you know, muddy, grassless fields straight into a summer season where there was no grass and then the, the sun had baked it. And so we just played on hard. Like a cricket pitch type thing. Yeah, 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 wow. People landed on the grass and the bursas would go. Everybody had bursa problems. I remember everybody, nearly every everybody, every club, yeah, had these popped bursas on the on the joints. Yeah, wow. And I was walking around like Popeye, we're just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. right. Okay, mate. Well, look, second question. Uh, we asked this one before and you got this right. So you played the, the Knights, our club, in, in the World Club Challenge back in 2002 after you won the season um, in 2001 with Bradford. Who was the captain of the Bulls? You got this right. It was. I'm going to think. <laughs> think again. <laughs> Is it Henry Paul? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, so, <laughs> it was his brother. Yeah. Uh, mate, so he was your 5'8". Can you just tell us a little bit about him? What he was like as a player? Uh, Robbie or Henry? Robbie. Uh, yeah, brilliant bloke. Uh, yeah, a very individual player. Uh, but before... I think back in back when I was playing, and certainly when I started playing, if you had one or two individual brilliant athletes in your team, you'd, you'd win a lot of games. Yeah, and they didn't necessarily, and I, and I mean this, 
I hope this doesn't come across that, but they didn't necessarily need to have a connection with anybody else on the field. Or you know, halfbacks now need to have a connection with all the other 12, 12 guys. Certainly has to have a connection with his spine. Robbie and both Henry, the brothers, Robbie Paul, Henry Paul, they were individually brilliant athletes, awesome athletes. They understood a lot about the game. They knew the game. They were brilliant players. Uh, but they weren't your classic generals on the field, whether they were six or seven, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, they they were, they were individually very good. But Robbie's personality and Robbie's strength of character uh, were, you know, was bigger than his effect as an halfback, if that sounds right. Yep. Who he was, uh, was was probably more important. A little bit, you know, later years, I caught a bloke called Kevin Sinfield, who I think who he was, you know, probably overshadowed the type of player he was. Yep. And that's a great example of Robbie. I mean, your first official match as a coach was for Harlequins back in uh, February 2007. Do you remember who that game was against? Six. Ooh, Jimmy. Jimmy. Six. Jimmy, 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 mate. Your research is <laughs> well off today. Who was my first game against? Correct. St. Ellen's, I think. Bang, bang, bang. bang. You're three from three. There is... Yeah. Great work, Mac. All right, you're on I say why I know that game because I'm, I'm uh, Tony Ray, yep, Aussie, uh, who played for North Sydney Bears, uh, went home and played for London, uh, London Broncos. Uh, he was coach at the time. Uh, he stepped to a side and became director of rugby. I came in as being head coach. I remember Tony Ray talking me through my first game in charge as head coach. I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. And we had a player called Chad Randall who'd normally play for like 30, 40 minutes and they'd come off, have a break and go back on for a little bit. And uh, he was talking about the, the interchanges and how you would rotate players. And you've got to have a good idea of what you're going to do before the game. He doesn't just wait what happens. And I remember he talking to me about Chad and he just tapped me on the shoulder. He says, mate, I think you need, just need to have a look at Chad. And I completely forgot what we'd prepped to do. You know, because obviously I'm, I'm enthralled with everything. Yeah, gotcha. And it's at that point I thought, wow, this head coach's game is a little bit more than knowing about kicking. Yeah. It's a lot more to consider. Um, and I just felt that big. Yeah. <laughs> All right, mate, you're three from three. So your fourth question is, you won an historic treble with Leeds in 2015, winning the grand final, the League Leaders' Shield and the Challenge Cup. Who was the last English team to achieve the feat? There's only three done it. Uh, Saints did it before us, I think. Yes, you're right. Yeah, in 06, 07. They, but they won the quadruple, including the World Club Challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, uh, but not in the same era. Yeah, well, yeah. So I think, yeah, that's, that's yeah. You, so if you win the treble, that means you win the Challenge Cup at Wembley, which is a really historic comp. Yep, yeah. Uh, and then you get league leaders, which is very valued in England. Because we used to be first past the post, you know, the, the champions used to be decided by after twenty-two or twenty-six rounds, who came first. Yeah, yep. gotcha. And that, that were regarded as champions. Then we, in ninety-eight, we had playoffs, but we still valued who comes first. Yep. And then if you get obviously if you win the grand final, so then usually you play the World Cup Challenge at the start of the following year. Okay, so. Is, I suppose that is a called a quadruple, but if you could like, oh, because it's on the next year, yeah, yeah, it's on the next calendar year, yeah, uh, you know, and then and then that same year, so you'd have to win a back-to-back grand final, yeah, you know, to do this, yeah, gotcha. But uh, yeah, I don't think that's been done. Sure. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, mate. Well, last question, Jay. Far um, away. You fought from four, mate. So, as um, Croaks alluded to earlier, mate, you you coached the USA national team for the first time in 2015, and this was against Jamaica. Do you remember which US city that game was played in? That's not a hard question, is it? Ooh. <laughs> That's not a hard question. You better get it right now. Jacksonville? Correct. Correct. Do you remember the stadium, what it was called? Uh, the University of North Florida. The stadium? Ooh. We've got Hodges Stadium. But Jimmy's research has been a but bit off this episode, mate, so I'll give it to you. Hold on, hold on. You're cutting before I finish this yeah. <laughs> University of North Florida, uh, Hodges Stadium. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Very good, Matt. Very, very impressive, mate. You did well. Okay, listen, um, we spoke a little bit about uh, your coaching career over in the Super League. I want to talk about the, the two grand finals you won at Bradford. Can you tell us a little bit about those times and what it was like to win a grand final in the Super League? So 97 and 01, if I'm correct. Yeah, uh, 97, 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it would be hard. So in 1997, it was a, like a first past the post uh, win. And you've got to understand that two and a half years before that, Bradford Bulls were called Bradford Northern. And uh, they were at best a mid team competition. Yeah, okay. Uh, sorry, mid team table, sorry. Uh, mid-team, mid-table team. Yeah, yeah. Did I get this right? Yeah. <laughs> a, a mid-table team, okay? Uh, and the, the big players in the comp were Wigan, Saints, Warrington, uh, Leeds. They all spent a lot of money. You know, Hull were, were always challenging as well. And Bradford, who had some history of being successful, Bradford Northern, but went through a period where, you know, they weren't going to get much higher than mid-table. And then Brian Smith came as coach. Chris Kaysley, the owner, got Brian Smith in. Uh, we recruited some decent players, went full time, and it was just a, a, the rise in form and stature of the club just went enormous over such a short period of time. And then this place where we used to play, uh, called Odsall Stadium, was high up elevation. You know, I'm not sure if it's one of the highest grounds in the comp. It's not like a top of a mountain, but in terms yeah. of where we sit, yeah. the weather system's different. Okay, it's a bit thinner. Yeah. Higher altitude. I don't know about the air a bit thinner, but, yeah. but the weather, you could be down at the bottom. So when you come off the motorway or the highway to get to the ground, you travel up a few hundred metres to get to the ground. The air doesn't get thin. <laughs> but the weather changes. Yeah, gotcha. And, you know, quite often you were travelling down there, it'd be cold, but you get up there, it'd be freezing, snowing and raining. Yeah. Misty. Yeah. This place was horrendous to play in in winter. <laughs> it was horrendous to be at, whether you were, the, you know, one of the home players or the way players. But then we switched to summer. And this became just the perfect venue for warm weather. Yeah. Because it was such a bit, it's a basin in the ground. You get to the top of a, uh, well, you actually drive down into the ground. It's a bit of a, like a gladiator's arena. Yeah, right. gotcha. And you yeah, get yeah, some yeah. photos of it, you know, when, when the ground's full. And it was an awesome place in, in summer. So, you know, we'd gone from being a, you know, a sleepy, you know, mid-table team to then one of the leading teams with this ground that nobody wanted to go to. Game day, Chris Kaysley, the owner, invested a huge amount of money on, on game day entertainment and brought in some you know real current bands, some pop bands, pre-match. It was awesome. We loved it. So when we won in 97, we were by far the best team in the comp. I think we won 21 games straight without losing. Really? Yeah, wow. 21. Really? Wow. Crazy. Um, yeah, uh, and and I don't think you would say we had Robbie Paul in the team, 
I'm trying to think of, of absolute superstars that that you may not know them being from Australia, but even in England, I can't think of too many people. We had some really good players, like a, a fellow called Jimmy Lowe's who played at Leeds, and then he came to Bradford and really f- flourished. But he wasn't a household name superstar. We had a, just a team of people that all came off building sites. Because bearing in mind, we'd gone from part-time yep. yeah. to full-time two years prior. So a lot of blokes came from industry, from different industries, to becoming full-time players. And with that, we probably came, we weren't the best athletes, but we had great work ethic. Yep. Uh, because that's what you needed if you work in industry. If, you don't, if you're not born into sports, you've got to get up and earn a living. Yeah. Everyone understands the concept. If you don't work hard, you don't get paid. Yeah. But when we switched to full-time athletes, we just brought that essence with us. Yep. Uh, and then we had this this a set of values or, or, or something, a thread that kept us together, which was very, very strong. I don't think you'd go to Barclays Bank or go to Deloitte's accountancy and sell these values to them and say, this is what you should do to be successful. Because some of these values are about drinking beer. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and I, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it, but I'm not overly proud of the fact that what kept us together was our social life. Yeah. But the f- truth is, forget about whether it was right or wrong. The truth is, we had a really strong thread that kept us together. Yeah. Whatever that kept us together off the field kept us together on the field as well. So we became we we became an incredibly tough team to play against. Yeah. And then over the next couple of years, we recruited some some more, some decent names. And then we got some players from the NRL, and the team looked a little bit more like uh, it had some superstars in it. And then we won the grand final in two thousand and one as well. But I think that that first grand final win or that first Super League win, sorry, in nineteen ninety seven, was down to sheer hard work. Yeah, cool. Uh, and tenacity. Yeah. It's. Uh, I think that's that. That would, would be my most memorable. Was it was it a slow rise to the ninety seven win, or was it like the years before that? As you said, you guys were sort of like a mid table team. Was it building towards that, or did you go from just kind of being mid table well, to that year at all coming in together? Yeah, ninety five for that in nineteen ninety five when we switched from the comp didn't switch from uh, to summer in ninety five. We we spent that final winter season in in uh, we started pre season in. Uh, summer of 95 for the winter season yep. but we knew it was going to switch we all got told it's going to switch after this year we're going to switch for the summer and yep. what you're all going to do is you're going to go play for 18 months straight Yeah. which was that right well, yeah. I'm not sure what's that going to look like but we went for it but the, I do remember the hard work and some of it you know we're doing this at training now you know so this is what we do these are the systems we use this is what you should do here's a scenario this is what we all should do but we had a really basic version of that offensively and defensively and all that started in 1995. So when we won the comp in 2000, in uh, 1997, it was largely based on, again, you know, who we were and how we did it, but some of the systems that were in place as well. Yep. So, you know, I, I think if you talk about planning for success and, and a period of that being two and a half years, you might think that's really, really short, a short period. You know, in sports teams, you know, you don't think, right, we're going to go from there to there, and two years later you get there. Yeah, it can take you five years, you know. Exactly yeah, right. so relatively short, I would say. Yeah, so you stepped into your coaching career uh, not long after your your playing career was finished, and uh, we spoke about this before that you won four grand final wins as a coach. So all at Leeds in 2011, 12, 15, and seventeen, and also winning the treble. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? 
because you had some great teams and you had some great players within those teams. And we'll talk about them in just a second. But those grand final wins on their own, what was that like, mate? Yeah, uh, what you want to say? It's great. It's it's, it's brilliant. It's, uh, it's it's you're very proud of it, but you feel very privileged as well. Uh, I spent five years at London coaching before I got to Leeds. I was at Leeds Rhinos as an assistant coach first. Yep. And then I became head coach of London Broncos. They were called Harlequins Rugby League at the time. So I went down London for four and a half, five years and uh, and cut my teeth, I suppose, as a head coach down there and probably made every error known to man. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's, it's under the radar. I suppose it's a little bit like maybe Northwinds and Cowboys or Melbourne Storm. They're, out, they're outside the hub yeah. of... of you know where all the press and media is, and uh, and you get to find out what coaching's about. Everybody has an idea of, as an assistant of how you should play and how you should pick a team and how you should manage things and how you should manage press and, I, and all this stuff. And then when you become head coach, I always describe it like putting on different different glasses. It just gives you the clarity of what you're seeing more so than an assistant. Yeah. Not that you're seeing things blurry and then as an assistant, but when you put the glasses on as head coach and all eyes are on you, and when you're coming down from the stand back down to the pit side and your team's either winning and losing, all eyes are on you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it just gives you a different, a really, you know, a real poignant focus on, on, on when you're picking a team or how you deliver something to the players. So uh, when I did that at London, it, it was a shock to me. Just how much it mattered what you said. Yeah. That's the first thing that what I wanted to say, what Brian McDermott wanted to say, is very, very different to what the players needed to hear. Yeah, gotcha. And that's a real, you know, yeah. what do I want to say? Well, who gives a shit what you want to say? <laughs> what do the players need to hear? Yeah. So by the time I got to Leeds, I'd, I'd, I'd got some runs on the board, you know, as head coach, um, when I went back to Leeds as head coach. Um but I, I also knew it was a different version of coaching because I didn't need to teach the blokes how to play. I didn't need to show them how to play. Clearly, we needed to all buy into a certain system, which I did. But then it became about managing personalities, managing different people. Yeah, you know, we had three halfbacks that wanted to play, you know, two positions. Yeah, that, we, that was one of the first thing. Kevin Sinfield, Danny Maguire, and Rob Burrow—they all wanted to play six and seven. And I had to leave one of them out, and majority of the time I left Rob Burrow, out, which was, you know, a real difficult decision for me to come to terms with. More difficult for Rob to deal with because Rob started a lot of games on the bench, yep. and he was a genuine number seven. And, you know, carried our squad number seven as well. It was almost like a brand, yep. number seven now. Uh, so yeah, I quickly learned when I got back to Leeds that uh, managing the players and managing the squad was equally, if not equally as big, if not bigger. Then coming up with a game plan, yeah, wow. coming up with you know the right format of practice. So, it, uh, I found it really fascinating. I say I find it interesting. I'm a fan of coaching. I love coaching. I love leadership, and I love. It always fascinates me how some bloke can deliver. He can deliver something, and it has a certain effect on the group. And somebody else delivers the exact same thing, but the way he does it and how he says it, and the eye contact that he has with them, or wherever it would be, has a different effect. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's so. While I'm going through that that real harsh learning curve at being at a club as big as the Rhinos, that has all eyes are on the club. It's the biggest club in the game, uh, in over in the UK. Sorry, 
it's uh, as I'm as all these things are unfolding, I'm going on thinking, wow, this is big. Yeah, yep. some of the decisions I've got to make, and I've got to get this right. So, how many years did you feel like it took for you to sort of hit your straps with your coaching? Like you're saying, sort of jokingly before you didn't know what you were doing. Did you did you ever feel that way? Did you ever feel comfortable with it? Where you felt like, yep, yeah, I'm I'm right where I need to be. This is sort of I've, I've got my sort of this mind feel, around it. This is why I feel a bit fortunate, or, or uh, yeah, fortunate's probably a decent word because you can be confident in your coaching, and I think you can be confident about what you're delivering as a coach, and you, you know what. It, you know in yourself this this is good but until you see it work then I think every coach is guessing it. look I sit here today and I'm still trying to work coaching out you know so yeah. I, I, I haven't got anything covered and now I'm in the NRL whatever I thought I knew it's almost like yeah yeah for sure yeah you know I'm, I'm I'm learning and relearning as we go right here in the NRL but just in terms of coaching if you put something in place and it works, that's great. If you put something and it works repeatedly, I think you've got something. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, the, the, there's an 18-month period where you think, we've got all of this, I can use this. I know this is going to work. And then 18 months later, the game slightly shifts, shifts or adapts and changes or a new rule or interpretation comes in. You've got to readjust that or reevaluate that. Uh, there was a period where I was at the Rhinos where I thought, I think I know what works. Yeah, yeah. And it's incredibly exciting because, you know, and it's a little bit, you, you might be asking, well, what is that? Yeah. Well, it's a little bit how you talk to players. It's a little bit how you train them. It's a little bit what, what you do. You know, what you do is important. The game plan and what we get the players to do is clearly important. But I think how you do it and why you're doing it, that's what I started to get a grip of. How we do it and then why we're doing it, which... And I used, when I was at London, I think that's the best way of describing it. I spent so long thinking about, well, what do we need to do? And I didn't spend enough time thinking about how and why. And yeah. You've got an answer to the why. I think, I'm not saying the what becomes less important, but you don't, I don't lose sleep over the what anymore. Yeah, okay. It's about the how and the why. Yeah. Mate, you mentioned um, three players before, and I was, I've got their names written down here, plus one. Uh, Jamie Peacock, Danny McBride, uh, Danny McGuire, Kevin Sinfield, and Rob Burrow. What what was that like coaching those players? You mentioned it before about the three halves, but Jamie Peacock was your hard man up front. Did, did you did you get to play with Jamie yeah, Peacock you, at Bradford yeah, yeah. early in his career? Yeah, 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 yeah. What was it like having those? Oh, I guess you could call them superstars. You know, you look at their record. Kevin Sinfield played five hundred twenty one games for yeah. Leeds, and Rob Burrow wasn't far behind, and yeah. neither was Danny Maguire. So they had a stack of games together. What was that like? It was awesome. Yeah. Honestly, it was awesome. And again, this word privilege, it's uh, also intimidating as well, you know. So certainly when I got back to the Rhinos as head coach, where I was on my journey as a coach was probably just a couple of steps from the start point where these um, coaching players who were well down the track as players already been successful. You know? Yeah. They were the biggest names in the game at the time. But they were all great. They were all really enjoyable to coach. Very, very different. Each one of them just incredibly different personalities, which again is the fascinating part about yeah. that. So, you know, Rob Burrow, for instance, he'd, uh, you give him the ball. And by his own admission, he said, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I would set off. And he would do something incredible most times he, he carried the ball. You know, he's not that far off the ground in terms of stature. His legs moved at a million miles an hour, tough as nails. 
didn't avoid contact at all. Defensively, you know, what he used to do against blokes who were sometimes like three foot taller than him was incredible. Uh, so he was a very instinctive player and a game breaker, an absolute game breaker in tight games, you know, he'd, he'd be the difference. He'd be, and if even if he himself didn't make the line break, because there's about eight blokes shitting themselves about him, <laughs> probably opened some gaps. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Uh, where Magsy was probably the best footballer out of everybody, Danny Maguire. He's, yep. he's the bloke who had the best instinct in terms of, uh, he knew if it was a 3v2, whether he needs to hit the lead or the block out the back. He had that instinctive about him. The way he carried the ball and some of his natural rugby league ability was, uh, was very, very good. Uh, I got him towards the back end of his athleticism, if you like. Yep. So he made his name on being fast as and in his support game. And when I got hold of him, it just had the edge taken off his speed because of his age. And bec- and he was always a six and probably played more of a seven role with under me. Uh, certainly towards the back end and he started to become a real good leader. Uh, Keb Simfield was, uh, was a mixture of everything. He was a six, he was a seven, he was a leader, but he was a great foot soldier. He would do the tough stuff. He's probably the definition of, of toughness, personified that, because I don't think Kev's ever had a fight in his life and he doesn't want to have a fight. That's not how he would demonstrate toughness. He would demonstrate toughness by getting up and going again. You know, he played in a position where everybody had him on their uh, game plan, go at him, take him out of the game. And every single game he'd, he'd get leathered. As as Robin, uh, Danny Maguire, same with Danny Maguire, but Kev's on field intelligence and his his ability to work out what the team needs was yeah. enormous. So I think Magsy and Kev, uh, sorry Magsy and Rob were very individual players. I would say this about Kev that he had he had the best take on what the team needed than anybody I've seen, whether it be in a meeting, whether it be on the field, or even at corporate event. Yeah, he he just said, "Look, we only need to slightly go left here. That's what we've got to do to win this game, or that's what we've got to do to get through this next period." So he's in. He's got this inbuilt leadership. He's got he's got this vision of what the group needs more than most people. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like his instincts on the field kind of carried off off the field, as you're saying sure, there. You know, sure, same yeah. thing. And JP was, uh, he was just like this big, massive, walking, aggressive leadership machine that just would never take a backward step yeah so it's uh, I don't know I would deliver something as a code this is the best version of probably describing JP there's two scenarios One's in, one of them's in prep one of them's on a game day I would deliver something as a coach and I'd deliver and I'd give my best bit of delivering it and there is an element of uh, performance as a coach you got to when you deliver something important you make sure you got to yeah. nail it you can't just go up think we might need to do something you've got to have a, a bit of a delivery and uh, if ever the my delivery was a little bit undercooked JP who always used to sit at the top right in the room no matter what area was in even the venue would change he'd sit top right and he'd always say in his broad West Yorkshire accent he'd say right well I'll tell you what that means <laughs> <laughs> and he'd also he'd almost he'd just like translate it for yeah, yeah. and he would say something like this means that we've got to go do this and we can't nothing on like that and I don't want to see anybody come in and this is what it's got to look like. Do you understand what I'm saying? And everybody, JP would sit behind everybody, everybody would go. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one on a game day, 
is, as you well know, Crooks, there's a period of time when you walk in and you're on, you're up, you're up for the game, but you're not necessarily you know, in the zone just yet. Yep. And there's a period of time, I don't know whether it be half an hour, 25, 20 minutes before warm-up, where the room changes, the music goes off, people stop farting about, and then people start talking. And then when JP, that happened to JP, he would stand up, and he wouldn't tell people what to do. He would get up, stand up and say, this is what I'm going to do today. And it was powerful as anything. And it's, you know, if you could get a player like that, it would, you could see him slowly getting quieter and quieter and he'd be putting his boot on there. And you could see him running scenarios through his head and you could see him getting angry about certain outcomes of these scenarios. You could just read what he was doing and I thought, he's going to stand up soon. And then he'd put his boots on, he'd, he'd, no shirt would be on, he's a massive body. And he'd stand up and he'd go, right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do today. And he would deliver to the room what he's going to do. Oh, no way. I'm going to have this many carries. I'm not going to take a backward step. You know, I'm going to bash his. We'd always have a couple of indicators of the opposition that we need to do a job on. And he said, uh, he's having it. He's having it today. I'm going to give him everything today, you know. And the room would just go, right, this is the direction we're off in. Yeah. Every single week, he'd go through that process. He might be saying the same thing, but you've got no. to do the same thing most weeks, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. yeah. But it was never an act he would emotionally put himself in a place where you just had to follow. So, and know, my, my, my coaching, I'm just watching them all, you know. Yeah. If I give it any credit, if I give myself any credit, is that you allow them to do it. Yeah. As well. You don't, you know, what do I You don't want to overcoach them if they're doing it themselves. What I want to yeah. say it's probably not that important. Yeah. It's just let them do that. Now, you mentioned all these players and in 2011 you had one of our very own Playing the number nine role. What was that like when Bedsy goes over there? So for those who don't know, Danny Badiris played in the 2011 Grand Final with you guys. Yeah. It was your, it was your starting nine. What was that like? What was Bedsy like in the environment of blokes that you mentioned are such great leaders? And Bedsy was such a great leader in his own right. What, what was it like when he got over to a different environment? Yeah, Bedsy, he'd he got there before I became as head coach. He'd had a couple of years there, and I know he'd had a turbulent time, Bedsy, uh, settling in at the Rhinos. Uh, not anybody's fault it, it's hard going to a different country you know you imagine going to a different country where you land and it's winter yep. it's come from this it's yeah exactly right beach, <laughs> straight, into, <laughs> straight into Edinley sideways <laughs> rain so uh, <laughs> you know and he, he I didn't know this at the time he just told me recently he spent a month in a hotel with all the boxers that they travel with you know with a new baby and it was hard I was talking to Chris as well she was saying it was really hard to start with they ended up loving the place, but you know the first bit's hard. So I never, I never was, I wasn't there when he first landed. I got there after about eighteen months when he was there, and uh, yeah, he was awesome. He was awesome. He's, and I, I don't mean on the field. He's, he's great player on the field, but guess what? Superstars aren't always great on the field as well. And you know, we had a turbulent year that year. We finished fifth in the league that year, uh, and our week in week out form was crap. Uh, and I'm making more errors you can shake a stick at. I've been coaching five years and I'm still learning. I'm still not sure. Uh, I'm still guessing my way through. Uh, so I made a, I made a few errors as well. But Bezzy was brilliant with me. I remember him coming up to me after a field session once. You know you'd nailed it as a coach, or you know when you think oh, that's been a bit ropey as a coach. And I walked off and I'm a bit, I wasn't good that day. Yeah. Bezzy came up and said something. 
I don't remember what he said. It's really irrelevant what he said. But what he intended to do was to make me feel okay. Yeah. He says, mate, that's all right. Don't worry about that. You know, uninstigated. I wasn't asking him for his opinion. He came and sought me out. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? Here's a guy whose own form's not where it needs to be, nor was anybody else's. I think we might have been ninth in the league at the time. Who had the presence of mind to look at me struggling and just came up and said, listen, we're all right. We're heading in the right direction. He said something and I just thought, God, you're good, you. You're very good. We ended up finishing fifth in the league. We flew through playoffs and uh, won the grand final. So, yeah, you know, that's, again, there's that word privilege. So, it was, it was, a, uh, it was awesome to coach. Yeah, very cool. Look, we're just going to take a quick break. Um, we'll be back after that, mate. We're going to sort of step away from the Super League stuff and talk about a little about uh, your time here in Newcastle and what we're looking forward to uh, for the upcoming season. We'll be back after this. Maxwell Recruitment and Training provides skilled labour hire and apprenticeships that help build the nation. They are heavy industry specialists serving the region's best manufacturing, mining services, engineering trades, construction work sites and offices. For labour hire, apprenticeships or training, visit www.maxwellrt.com.au. All right, welcome back to Knights HQ, brought to you by Maxwell Recruitment and Training. We're here with Brian McDermott, the Knights assistant coach. We just talked about uh, your time in the Super League, um, as we said, as a player and coach, winning comps and stuff like that, mate. Thanks for the chat. That was really cool. We're going to talk about now the Knights. Yep. Um, You know, you're here for the 2023 season. We're sort of at the end of our, what would you say, croaks our full-on hard training stuff and going into more of a game cycle uh, leading into the trials. Um, Brian, mate, what what are you what are you taking out of the training, and and, and what are you looking forward to when, with the trials coming up? Yep, uh, it's been it's been a really interesting period for me because uh, it's just very different. Yeah, it's almost like we're playing the same sport, but we're not. Uh, the main the big main difference is the level of prep that goes into just a practice session. Yeah. We're either don't, we don't do in Super League because uh, we don't or we, it isn't something that we're thinking about or we're just not allowed to yeah. because of the resource that goes into it and the facilities that we use. Uh, weather's a big factor. Uh, it's, uh, I know people would roll their eyes in England because especially owners and chief execs, they just don't want to hear about it. You know, that facilities and the resource that you put into a team has a huge bearing on the level of prep that you can go through. So uh, every single session, if you just if you just just did quick numbers on a ten year old kid in Oz and a ten year old kid in England, and try and work out how many field sessions he would have in practice, right? And by the time they get to twenty, uh, how many extras would the Aussie stay out for after the coach has finished talking to him? and how many times he would pass and kick and tackle something in his own time, uh, it would be enormous for the, the kid down under compared to the kid in England. Yeah. Uh, that's not that the, the coach doesn't think about those things or that the kid's lazy. Quite often the kid's got to get off the field in pre-season because it's cold. Yeah. It's a massive factor. Hectic. And I'm not just talking about cold. I'm not talking about, ooh, it's a bit chilly. Yeah. I'm yeah. talking about you cannot feel your hands. Yeah. So even if the kid stays out there for, you know, for some of the field sessions, some of the hundreds of field sessions I'm talking about in this ex- example, even if he stays out for some of those, he couldn't use his hands. Yeah. Because you can't feel Because of the weather. It's crazy. So, you know, so when we're in pre-season, when we're training in pre-season, the blokes are training, they, they might get down to a, 
a sweat top or something like that, take all the heavy gear off because you're running them, right? But as soon as they stop, you've got to get the warm clothing back on. Yeah. And players do stay out. Players go out and do extras. But you're not staying out for an extra 20 minutes and the extras that that you're trying to get through aren't top quality. They're not the top end of skill because... Uh, I worked with Riley Jacks last year. Riley Jacks was at Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Halfback. Uh, I re- worked with him last year. And he spent most of pre-season in a, a travel jacket. You know, the club <laughs> travel jacket. You know, the three-quarter lengths. Yeah, he yeah. couldn't believe the weather we're training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it hilarious. He's trying to do 3v2s like Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> But that that's the biggest difference. Yeah. This place we train out here, it's yeah, I can't I can't describe to you how different it would be for a team in Super League. Never mind teams below that. Yeah. Most teams in Super League got some all right facilities. Yeah. Not many have got brilliant ones, but to have this as a as a facility for level of practice and the, the amount of quality work you can get through, it's uh, it times that by fifteen years. Yeah. Then you start to really see the difference in some person. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. Compared to those. Yeah. Uh, mate, as we know, the season's just around the corner and everyone's getting pretty excited for it. I know the fans are. What excites you most, mate, about the season coming up? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm still on the outside looking and I feel. Uh, I'm still getting used to everything and I still, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm completely in sync with... Uh, with what's going on in the NRL, why would it be? I've only been in a few weeks. So yeah. I don't, I don't lose any sleep over that. So I'm just really fascinated about uh, how the trial game will go. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and how you blokes put into play some of the things we've been trying to do in practice. Uh, it's always a good qualifier, isn't it, when you've got to put your body in front of somebody who's running at you. You know, and and you're getting hit and tackled in wherever we we. Whatever we see on the screens there, when we show you in practice, it gets qualified in a real game. And some of that will drop off. We understand that. Uh, some of that will uh, may look a bit more fuzzy. But that's what the trial games are for, so we can readjust and set our sights accordingly. So I'm just really looking forward to... I've never seen you blokes play. Yeah, so fair. I've never experienced it. I've never seen you... I've never seen you push through some pain barriers and push through some fatigue barriers and... You know, and come in at half time disappointed. So I'm looking forward to what to all those experiences and yeah, and I think with what we've been doing so far and how we've been looking in training, I'm excited. I'm excited and I think it, it, some of the things that we've been putting in place could be really good. On a personal level, like you're talking about then like you're still finding your feet and, and you've you've never coached in, in the NRL before. What are the things personally you're looking at for your personal development? You know, what are the things that you're looking at, sort of getting out of those trial matches and, and into the first few rounds for yourself to kind of get acclimatised to the to the competition? I think the uh, I think the thing I'm aware of, that, that I'm wary of or I'm, I'm aware of is that the standard of athlete one to thirteen is more consistent, and I I don't know if I'd use the word better. I think I'm okay in using the word better. There's a better standard of athlete. From one to thirteen in the NRL and the NC Super League, you know, I'm not talking about toughness. I'm not talking about work ethic or desire, ambition, or, or you know, just sheer commitment to the job. You know, people in Super League work incredibly hard. Whether that be the owners, chief execs, players, coaches, incredibly hard. But the best athletes in England are playing soccer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yep. uh, and then probably the second best athletes. Generally, I'm talking now in the country. You know, probably playing rugby union. 
Yeah, right. So, uh, rugby league in the north of England is massive, it's huge, and you know some of the best athletes play rugby league as well. It's in that we don't have the decent athletes, but I'm talking one to thirteen. Yeah. You know, you know, people like an Adrian Morley or a Sammy Burgess or a James Graham or George Williams or John Bateman, all those athletes there, they're probably the best athletes and they switched to Rugby League and we're grateful that they did. But the teams that they grew up in, 1 to 13, just wouldn't have the great athletes. They were yeah. somewhere else. So I'm, I'm really interested and, and I'm looking forward to watching and going through the first three or four games playing against the opposition's best athletes and seeing what we do, how it how it implements when you're playing against some really fast, strong, athletic guys, you know. And uh, I think some of the uh, some of the reality of coaching is that uh, if you've got a, a brilliant athlete and a, and a highly skilled player and you give him time and space, I don't care what systems you've got defensively, it's going to cause you some damage. Yeah. So how you manage the game and... and uh, w- what they're like when they've got the ball in hand as a bear and then how good they can be. So therein lies the nature of the sport, isn't it? Yeah. Don't give them the ball too easily. <laughs> yeah. When you do give them the ball, make sure they're tied when they've got it. Yeah, yeah gotcha. Well, mate, thanks. Thank you very much. It's been really good. We might just wrap it up there. Yeah. Um, really, yeah, really, really appreciate you coming on today, mate. We've got a, Everyone's got a story and yours is pretty impressive and uh, we didn't even touch on half of it. So thank you very oh, much mate, for coming in. I just want to say before I check out... Uh, you know, I want to thank everybody at Newcastle, whether it be in the city or, or, or the club in particular, it's been brilliant. Um, it's, you know, I feel like I've been a bit of an add-on to what's going on so far, and, and that's okay because that's what I am. But uh, I think everybody's been so welcoming. Players have been great. Staff's been awesome. Uh, I can't, I can't think of anything that, that I would say. Oh, you probably need to do this a bit better. It's just been such a great experience for me and my family. So thank you. No, no problem. We're so happy to have you here, Brian. And mate, thanks so much for your time. Um, look guys you can subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify wherever you get your podcast. you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, full versions of the podcast are on YouTube so you can like and subscribe hit the notification bell so you're notified when we uh, drop a new video also there's plenty of happening around Nights HQ and the best way to stay on date and up to date with all of that is through the club's website social media channels make sure you follow us at NRL Nights we also like to thank our major sponsor, Maxwell Recruitment and Training, for bringing you this episode of the pod. Once again, Brian, thanks so much for coming in, mate. Croaks, it's been a pleasure. See you next week, Jay. We'll see you on the next one. Cheers.